So the main idea of this podcast is to look at public incidents generally and discuss them in detail with an exploratory mindset. So we try and be respectful and non-judgmental. And when we're looking at the incidents, we're trying to hold in our minds continually the question, what would have to be true for that to have been a reasonable idea at the time? Today we're going to study a recent, fairly large software outages, and it's notably one of the few that already has its own Wikipedia page, and and this is the October 4th Facebook outage. Hi, my name's Nora, his name is Niall, and together we are Getting There. This is an irregular podcast where we discuss incident management, safety science, reliability engineering, and operations in the headlines and beyond. We are quite literally figuring this stuff out. We are getting there, implying we're not quite there yet. Instead, we're on a journey exploring this stuff together. Getting There is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Niall Murphy. Niall is an award-winning author, speaker, technologist, and executive leader. He's best known as the instigator, as he calls himself, editor and co-author of the best-selling Google SRE book, which is just a short while ago, he ripped up on camera to great acclaim. He's devoted over 20 years of mission-critical engineering roles to the craft of software, large-scale service operations, teaching, machine learning, and diversity in computing. He worked at Amazon, Google, and most recently Microsoft, where he was the global head of SRE. And he helps organizations to get better results in productions and describes himself as an infrastructure esthetician. Uh, So thank you so much for joining me today, Niall. I'm super happy to chat with you about this. Thank you, Nora. And I am joined by Nora Jones, who best describes herself as a distributed systems cultural anthropologist. She's worked in many organizations as a software engineer, but has best been deployed as someone who navigates between PR engineering and organizational psychology. This has led to her writing two books in chaos engineering, working at large companies with many interesting incidents like Slack, Netflix, Jet.com, and most recently led to her founding Jelly.io, the first incident analysis platform. And her goal is to help the software industry navigate incidents in a productive way so we can use this knowledge to improve from those incidents, basically get the results out of them, having paid for them already, and get better altogether. Thank you, Niall. So the main idea of this podcast is to look at public incident documents, public incidents generally, and discuss them in detail with an exploratory mindset. So we try and be respectful and non-judgmental. And when we're looking at the incidents, we're trying to hold in our minds continually the question, what would have to be true for that to have been a reasonable idea at the time? Of course, this doesn't prevent us from being critical where we think it's deserved, and we will be, particularly if we see power differentials contributing negatively to an incident. But that's not our main focus. We're actually just trying to explore with open minds. Absolutely, Niall. And and I really like that. I I think, you know, one thing that we're really trying to do here is is share all the different perspectives that needed to be true, like you said, for an incident to exist. In order for us to do that, we'll, we'll have a few ground rules. So we'll do respectful analysis of public outage documents. We'll be empathetic, hashtag hug ops. 
we're going to be organizationally minded. And so we'll go into the technicalities while appropriate, but you won't learn the fundamentals of DNS just by hearing us talk. So we're going to take a socio-technical uh, systems approach. The system is the people and the technology together. It's ultimately impossible to separate them. And the reason that we're doing this podcast is we find that online, they are frequently separated, which is not doing a great service to us and our organizations and in the technology industry as a whole. So which one are we going to study, Nora? <laughs> yeah, I'm super glad you asked. So today we're going to study a recent um, fairly large software outages. And it's notably one of the few that already has its own Wikipedia page. And, and this is the October 4th Facebook outage. And Niall and I have been chatting about this outage for a while. And, and you know, we, we've been talking about this podcast for a while too, but um, this one was, was pretty fascinating for us to choose. And I'll let Niall go into why we, why we chose it. Well, I think the first thing to say is that this incident is now more famous than I am because it has its own Wikipedia page. But actually, the real reason is, I mean, it's a combination of things, right? The first thing to say is it's so large and so noticeable and notable, right? Because when you look at how outages, particularly in the large cloud providers, which I happen to be extremely familiar with for various reasons, when you look at those outages, they are very rarely what I will call sawtooth style outages, like everything's completely dead and now everything's completely back up. You generally see some kind of spectrum of disorder or unavailability or similar. That may or may not be related to the fact that these large public cloud providers are in more or less a B2B, a business-to-business kind of configuration with you know a random business running its VM on Azure or whatever. But Facebook is a wholly owned kind of service provider in more or less a consumer to consumer model where folks are using the platform to talk to each other. So that's already a kind of a significant difference. I think another interesting thing about this outage is that you don't really get as big as Facebook is and not have unexpected or kind of unintended effects, which I, I find interesting. I mean, it's, it is noticeable in things like login with Facebook, for example, where a whole bunch of people were unable to use their services because login with Facebook itself was down. And I know myself, I have... Sometimes when logging into some new kind of online service, I have stopped and kind of stroked my chin and gone, actually, should I make this a Google login or should I create a separate account? And I know I think that way, but I'm pretty sure most other people don't think that way. The impact of login with Facebook being unavailable, probably pretty severe. But one of the other interesting kind of unexpected effects is this question of the uptick in replacement services. I suppose in the language of economics, we would say kind of substitutable goods, right? So Facebook is down, so everyone piles onto Twitter. And I think actually Twitter themselves released this kind of famous tweet saying, hello, everyone, and we do mean everyone, or like words to that effect, right? I think also that the human impact that we know must be there, but hasn't really been officially talked about, and given how you know, really large incidents tend to be run by our industry, you know, it probably won't be. And I, I think all of those factors together make it a, a sensible choice. So, Nora, do you want to run us through what actually happened, like what we know about the timeline and the official documents and so on? 
Yeah, absolutely. So what happened at a high level was that Facebook and all of its subsidiaries were down on October 4th, 2021. And so from the Wikipedia page as well, it says um, that the social network Facebook and all of its subsidiaries, which included Messenger, Instagram, WhatsApp, Mapillary, and Oculus became globally unavailable for a period of six to seven hours. And it wasn't just like their companies that were down. Facebook has their own domain registrar and resolvers, and those were all down along with the 3,500 domains that they own. Effectively, routing was restored for the affected prefixes at 2150, and DNS services began to be available again at 2205 UTC with application level service layer services gradually being restored to Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp over the following hour with service generally restored for users by 2250. Like Niall said, everyone kind of noticed this and and a lot of the other social platforms that were were not related to Facebook were were chatting about it publicly too, which I imagine does impact how this gets responded to internally. It, It puts a lot of pressure on responders when the whole world is taking notice. Allegedly, employees at Facebook could not get into buildings or conference rooms because all of these systems were interconnected. Um, Facebook uses Facebook internally quite heavily. Uh, They don't use email. They don't use Slack. They use Messenger uh, to communicate with each other. And so you can imagine that that was really hard for them um, that particular day. But I haven't seen that piece talked a lot about in, in what happened in the incident. But I imagine it affected the response and how they went about the response in in a pretty fascinating way. In a lot of safety critical industries, that's known as a strange loop. And the most shortened way I I can break that down, and this is something that Dr. Richard Cook says a lot, it's when the thing that's broken is in fact the thing that's broken. Um, So you can imagine that that makes it very hard to go about addressing things, especially as a responder. And because of these missing uh, DNS records for Facebook.com, every device with the Facebook app was then DDoSing recursive DNS resolvers, which was causing overloading. And so I I saw a pretty funny tweet uh, about that during that day. It said, DNS didn't break Facebook. Facebook is breaking DNS. And so Facebook actually put out a a public response pretty quickly. And in in the very first sentence, they said they were focused on learning, which, which is really great. That's how we ultimately improve uh, from incidents. The author of that post was a VP of infrastructure, and it is quite good that they chose that role to to talk publicly about the outage. One of the things I wanted to know after seeing that that was the role that was talking about the outage is I'm curious which other roles that person spoke to that informed the perspective on the story itself. Um, That's super important organizationally for people to feel psychologically safe afterwards that their perspectives informed the write-up that was written. And something that, that Niall and I had talked about too, he had asked me, you know, what, what happens to your morale when millions of people are, are kind of clamoring for you to fail, right? And that, that comes up online and, you know, it, it is cheeky in effect, but it was true. And I can't imagine being a responder in that situation, but it's, it certainly had to make things um, challenging. And this becomes a point when, like Niall said earlier, when PR mixes with engineering, mixes with organizational psychology, and all those factors make it very hard to learn from this incident in a productive way that that Facebook as an org will, will improve from. 
Yeah, I think one of the other interesting things about the hugely public nature of this outage, and as you say, the millions of people clamoring for you to fail and so on and so forth, is the fact that the other social networks were full of commentary about what was going on. And some of this was leaked information and some of it was leaked misinformation. If you remember the angle grinder story about getting into the cages and so on and so forth, I'm told, I believe reliably that this is in fact uh, totally wrong. And a lot of people were just making up stuff because not knowing what is actually happening is fertile ground for somebody to fill it with something that seems plausible, possibly even, you know, amusingly plausible. And so a lot more potential for going viral in those circumstances. Of course, we live in a viral age in more ways than one. But I just found it's interesting because you don't see that kind of thing about the smaller outages from the cloud providers. Like when when US East One goes down, people are all over it like a bad suit and there's lots of jokes and so on. But uh, I don't think it reached quite the pitch that it did for the Facebook outage. You, you bring up a really good point too, um, which is that when it's an outage that impacts a lot of people, it, it's talked about a lot more, which means internally in the organization, people are probably feeling a number of different emotions, but those emotions become more heightened because the whole world is talking about it. And a lot of organizations, especially in the software industry, don't practice how they review incidents that aren't that big of a deal. And so by by not doing that as much, it makes the big deal incidents like the Facebook one uh, and like you know what you said, US East one, it makes it harder to recover from those organizationally because we haven't been here before, right? It feels so anomalous. It feels um, so stressful. People probably feel like they did something wrong. People might um, be subtly blaming each other. But unless we've practiced like how we learn from each other and how we talk to each other in those situations, it makes these incident reviews a lot more difficult. Yeah, I think, of course, the company culture or even team culture or division culture, they can, you know, be different or at odds with each other in various ways would contribute to the ability to heal or otherwise, right? I do think that given the past two years, more or less, have provided many of us with all kinds of reasons to be traumatized, there would certainly be even more reason to be traumatized by these six or seven hours if you happen to be unlucky enough to be responsible for restoring service. I do think, in one sense, talking about the humanistic approach to this, there just hasn't been a lot that's been said. There's been some things that that have been said by uh, Facebook leadership, but there just hasn't been a, a lot that's been said. And I think on a human level, uh, other than the, the trauma, we could say some other things about what must have been happening behind the scenes and how people conducted the incident. Do you have any experience of this kind of thing, Nora? Yeah, absolutely. And it is fascinating what you said, and it's not an anomaly that, that Facebook more or less mentioned what happened rather than shared the difficulties of responding to the event. Um, and I wonder if, if they did that more internally, but I'll go into a little bit of background. Incidents, especially the giant ones, are super fascinating in that they're the one time where some rules and processes in our organizations go out the window because 
effectively, everyone is trying the best they can to stop the bleeding. They're trying the best they can to restore services. And so at that point, they're, they're ultimately doing whatever they can. So if we miss the opportunity to review what actually happened during that time period when people were trying to stop the bleeding, if we do review it after the incident is complete, you get an incredible insight into how your organization is actually functioning versus how you might think it's functioning. And by actually looking into that delta and exposing it a little bit more so, it will give you pointers to areas in the organization that may need attention. Now, if you don't do that, you're going to have a number of areas to look into afterwards, but those show you the most productive areas. So I I hear you saying that there might be quite a difference between how we've written down the incident management protocol and who's going to get on the call and what they're going to do and so on and so forth versus what actually happens in situations like this where the the entirety of the rug and everything on it has been pulled from underneath you. You see a lot of people, uh, what tends to happen psychologically, of course, is that people fall back into old patterns that they've kind of learned and are, are scored deeply in the surface of their brain rather than reflecting more because the physiological effects of stress often make it hard to be, you know, creative and reflective in the moment. This might also be a contrast between work as written and work as done. Nora, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's it's absolutely true. And we're really talking about the coordination of the event. Like maybe you and I, Niall, are at this organization and we've worked at Facebook together for for like 10 years, but yet there's a lot of newer engineers and because you and I have this rapport and this camaraderie and we know how to work together, it might just be faster for us to just jump into a room in this particular incident than it would be to bring in new folks that we haven't had that chance to build rapport with, haven't had chance to build on disaster exercises with as much. And that's a good thing maybe that we did that. However, by not addressing, not having someone interview each of us and share like and, and try to extract what we knew about each other, like why I pulled you in or why you pulled me in or why you looked at this particular dashboard or or how you knew where to go at a certain moment. By not extracting some of those details, we missed the opportunity to allow all these other engineers that weren't perhaps involved in this particular situation to learn so that we are effectively disseminating uh, expertise in the organization, which can ultimately be the best action item. Yeah, I'm also thinking about the situation where there's some, let's say, well-documented process for incidents. I mean, I don't know if it is or not, but let's suppose it is. And what you have to do is, first of all, look up the phone number or VC that you have to join. Of course, you can't resolve any name that has FB or equivalent in it, the internal domain for Facebook stuff, as I understand it. Which means, of course, that your point about the social networks that already exist because people have bothered to manually put their numbers and their names in each other's phone and so on and so forth, those social networks already existed. I mean, existed at the time of the outage. And obviously, people are going to reach out to the people they know best or have these numbers for. And I expect there was quite a period of confusion while people were trying to figure out, like, who do I talk to? Who can I talk to? What's happening? And and so on. Of course, these are things that once you've got enough kind of islands of people talking 
together linked together you can get a critical mass and agree on one phone number or vc or whatever it is but i would expect that a certain amount of flailing around happened because none of the existing processes uh, were going to yield anything right in some sense i suppose you could think of it as being a process failure and a human success because the humans are providing adaptive capacity can you tell us a little bit about that yeah i mean humans are the reason our our systems stay up all the time and incidents are inevitable they're going to happen throughout the software industry especially as companies are getting better and, and at, something john alspa has said in the past is is that you're having incidents because you're successful as an organization um and so by not taking the opportunity to understand how things went right you won't actually be understanding how things ultimately went wrong. And so you brought up a lot of good points about, you know, uh having having phone numbers in there and knowing how to contact each other and a lot of the times those questions are not asked in incident reviews. And from my research is it's because we might feel silly asking those questions. Like that they, they might be, you know, just understood truths in the organizations and we we really have to get to the hard stuff which is like how did this database fail? But if we ask these coordinative questions first about how people work together we will ultimately get to the how the database failed in very much a, a better way right because we're understanding who knows about the database and who knows about a particular nuance of that database and how they know about it and how long it took for them to get that information and ramp up on that particular thing this incident was particularly fascinating because they effectively had to restore from nothing in a lot of ways and Niall I I have a hunch that you have been in this situation before what are some things you think responders might have been experiencing just from from your experiences in, in that kind of situation mm maybe he said uh so i i suppose the first thing to say is this kind of thing does fall into what I'll call the long tail of disaster distribution which is to say that i know as a matter of certain fact that all of the cloud providers for example i'm i'm using them to stand in place for kind of large online uh, service runners but let's say everyone for the moment they all model to some extent and they all care deeply for sure about large incidents the thing which is tricky about this is the ability to model what could happen successfully and most people or i suppose most decision makers that i'm aware of in this field which we'll call kind of business continuity or disaster response for lack of a better word they're really thinking about the first or at most the second standard deviation of things that could possibly happen to you right so typically speaking the events i've been involved in which attempt to simulate very large kind of disasters do take what i'll call a again to use that language second standard deviation style approach they're thinking about things which are plausible but which are known they cannot model an unknown unknown to happen they can say what happens if you know mountain view falls into the sea and none of the eu people can access mountain view desktops or they can say what happens if 
a sudden climate event or a storm or whatever strikes the Puget Sound area and none of the execs can get to communications. Like those kinds of things, events have wide impact, but are inherently kind of things you can predict. Like you, you have seen storms before, there will be another storm. But sufficiently large and complicated distributed systems are kind of the generative grammar of outages. They produce new things that we haven't seen before. And things which are lurking in configurations often contribute to the novelty of these, these outages. So in short, I'm pretty sure that Facebook and many other institutions, you know, have a long list of things about disaster recovery and business continuity and check marks beside them and so on and so forth. But of course, it's what happens when you come up against something fundamentally new like this and you're you're left with no tools to do it with. That is the, the trickiest thing. I know, for example, that Google spent a lot of time thinking about what happens in the situation when data centers are totally off the air and you have to restore from nothing. Um, there were several plans put in place, which I, I left before I saw the full outcome of. But in general, the difference really is that restoring service without tooling and restoring service with full access to your tooling are very different situations. And one of them generally leads to a much longer outage than the other. Yeah, amazing points. And, and one of the things I, I kind of want to grab onto a little bit is, is those unknown unknowns and how uh, an absolute infinite number of things could happen to your system. You know, people could go on vacation, certain things could go down. Like you said, an entire data center could go down. And we can prep for all these scenarios. We can have times when we come up with disaster recovery drills, but those take a lot of time to plan and prep for. And we might not have a sense as to how likely it is that something of a certain failure magnitude is even going to happen. What's your sense on how to weigh if it's worth the prep work for what seems like a totally off the wall failure scenario happening? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there's a couple of different models that uh, different engineering leaders use to make those kinds of decisions. I suppose the first model is kind of an insurance style model, which is to say there is a 0.1% chance of this $1 million thing going down. Therefore, it is economically rational to spend 0.1% of a million dollars on it. Mm -hmm. The difficulty with that model is that it's very much a point in time style thing, and it doesn't necessarily capture the value. Like when we say this system is worth a million dollars, we often mean something like in the previous three months, it generated a run rate of a million dollars or whatever, and saying that we can spend the percentage chance of it going down in this really unlikely way multiplied by its revenue ignores the possibility that in the future it will be worth more or that perhaps we have calculated these risks poorly. And so I do think the insurance model does have some traction in kind of higher level decision making about what's appropriate to spend on business continuity or disaster recovery. But as a whole, I think that cloud providers are in a slightly different place and they don't tend to use that model. They tend to divide the systems by importance 
and to not worry too much about the kinds of risks that could happen to them, but to say that, okay, this system is at the center of everything that we do. And if the network goes down or if Chubby goes down or if the Azure VM launcher goes down or whatever it is, then we're in very serious trouble. So it is worthwhile spending a constant amount of effort in design, in people who are charged with looking after it, and so on and so forth, to ensure that outcome either never happens, or if it does happen, you're kind of well positioned to restore service relatively quickly, rather than nickel and diming the increasingly unlikely scenarios. I'm pretty sure that for the six and seven hour outage, I think they it's calculated they lost something like 60 or $70 million. But I'm like going to assert that the total damage to their brand and being understood as people who can kind of run an online service is going to be worth more than 60 or $70 million. So I'm not even sure the point in time narrow dollar calculation is the right model here. It also impacts, you know, the confidence and in, in the working styles of, of people internally. So even though there's, you know, a public calculated cost for how much money they're actually able to calculate that they lost in that moment, like you said, there's also a brand cost. There's also an internal cost of how people talk to each other of whether or not certain people might, you know, voluntarily leave the company after certain situations like this. And you mentioned like the, the business calculated risk of deciding if it's a good thing to prepare for a failure scenario like this. And I think that is a, a a good model. And like, you know, no models are perfect. You know, all models are wrong. Some are helpful kind of thing. And I think the act of going through that exercise is probably more valuable than the exercise itself a lot of the time. Because um, I think in order to inform that calculated risk, it's necessary and most valuable to go through the incidents or near misses that you've already had in the past that will help kind of inform if it's that 0.1% or how difficult it will be internally for people to account for that 0.1%. You know, we've both worked at, at organizations that have had very public facing incidents before and just how to talk through things internally after some of this stuff happens. What's some of your experience there? Like, how do you, you know, outside of the, the public facing response, how do you kind of relate that to the internal response? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things to say about the dichotomy between public and private incident reports. I mean, obviously the, the public ones, or maybe it's not obvious at all, right? But the public ones are, are generally written uh, for an audience who could, if they don't like your words sufficiently well, sue you or are otherwise kind of timid, relatively timid about what they say. So they tend to be heavy on the, I suppose, apologetics end of things and light on the detail end of things. This is not actually necessarily, it, well, it certainly isn't helpful for the internal folks who generally speaking are suffering from kind of second victim syndrome or are acutely conscious of bad things that have happened under their watch. But it's also, I would argue, not particularly helpful for the public either. I mean, I'm sure there's some people who, who want to see an abject apology, and that's fine. But actually, as a public consumer of services, the best postmortems that I have seen are the ones from GitHub. 
And the reason is, is because they have the follow-up items connected to them. And you can go and browse them and you can see what they're doing. And it's, it's just treating me like an adult. And often I feel the really large outages for, for really large companies don't treat me as an adult or they treat me as an adult who is accompanied everywhere by an attorney. Yeah, I think you're right. And GitHub has had some really great public-facing incident reviews. I'd also add Cloudflare to that list. I found them incredibly detailed and sharing what folks have learned from them. I think one of the things that's interesting about very public-facing incidents that I know GitHub has had, Cloudflare has had, Salesforce has had, Facebook has had, is the time you are given to write that public apology or write that public incident review becomes a lot shorter than the time you're kind of given to write that incident review when it's a smaller scale incident, which is fascinating. And a lot of that has to do with public pressure, um, consumer pressure, but it's fascinating because usually you need more time to really understand what had happened. And so um, I think, you know, what you mentioned on the follow-up items can be important, but if I'm a consumer reading it and it's only a few days after the event, I don't know that I want to quite see follow-up items yet. I want, I want to almost see that, hey, here's what we know so far, and we're going to keep updating this the more and more we learn, which is kind of what Facebook did here, which I, I do have to applaud them for. That they, they did that on October 4th, and then they wrote a write-up on October 5th, but I do want more, right, as a consumer. If they're, if they're really trying to um, improve their engineering brand in certain ways and improve their brand in certain ways, I think they would be a bit more uh, transparent here with, with some of these learning styles. And like you said before, there, there's a dichotomy between the public facing incident reviews and the internal incident reviews, but they're also interrelated in a lot of ways because that public facing incident review, even though it might not have involved all the individual responders and it might be more of a PR piece, it does really impact how the responders talk about the incident too, because it sort of has to match that public review in some way. Well, if they're very different and continue to be very different for a long while, like that even causes us to ask questions about the culture. But in fairness, I think historically, Facebook have been super transparent. I mean, possibly more than you would like in some cases about how some of their things work. I have attended in the past, for example, talks about how they're externally facing uh, DNS as it happens, but also kind of front-end load balancing, architecture worked, et cetera, and their open compute platform. Like they do a lot of technical stuff, which is relatively in the open. I would be, I hope, optimistic, foundedly optimistic about the, the chances of being a bit more transparent about what we're doing here. But I, I think your earlier point is absolutely critical that actually, in, in some sense, it's a, a countervailing effect that the larger outages produce more pressure to get something out the door sooner. And the something often isn't what you want, or at least what we want. And I suppose there's an argument for getting something out the door as soon as possible, which is maybe even you know regularly refreshed every 15 minutes or whatever, still down, still working on it. Okay, now we have a clue. It's probably this thing and so on. And I'm convinced that was happening internally because they would have internal consumers, the incident management teams, engineering teams, and so on, would have internal consumers of, hey, are we still down for the world? Like there's going to be thousands of people who are asking that question inside of Facebook. And I think it might be a question to ask, 
whether or not this could be done in a way which would be publicly viewable at some point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, we would hope. I would, I would love to be a fly on the wall in that meeting. I think what was missing from this public write-up that I think would be helpful, even, you know, even though we can't control the time constraint that we're given after we're in an organization that faces a public incident, what we can control is, is telling the public how we went about uh, conducting this write-up, right? Um, I am curious, like I mentioned earlier, about the perspectives that informed the write-up that the VP of Infrastructure posted online. Um, there's this technique in uh, other safety critical industries that they've done for years called cognitive interviewing. Um, and it happens a lot in healthcare and aviation after these large incidents. We're really only just beginning to see it adopted in the software industry, but it's effectively the process of asking people questions one-on-one after an outage prior to having a large group meeting or even prior to having a write-up. Obviously, this takes a lot of time, but it informs like a higher quality perspective and ultimately higher quality fixes and organizational psychology improvement later on. It's not in the sense of what you're thinking, but in the sense of debiasing held beliefs about a situation. And it's vital to getting the most value that you possibly can out of this incident. So it's not asking the person, why did this happen? It's basically stating, can you tell us a little bit more about these bits and pieces that, you know, the person that you're interviewing knows about and how they might be applied to this incident? And the role of the interviewer is not to interrogate or be the expert in that situation. It's to put the person you're interviewing in a position of expertise. Because ultimately, they did have a piece of expertise about the incident. Even though a lot of things might have been wrong, they know things that no one else knows. And so it's your job as an interviewer to extract those things afterwards, which can inform a lot of different reviews. It, it, it can inform the public review. It can inform the actions that are taken afterwards. It's really um, a vital and, and magnificent tool to use if trained correctly in organizations. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things, keeping that in mind, is to me, this kind of smells like one of those areas where the public understanding of a thing is very different from the actual practitioner understanding of a thing. You've probably had this feeling if you've gone to a movie or whatever, and the movie has a scene where they use computers because almost all of those scenes are total and complete hokum for like understandable and good reasons, right? But often you you watch that scene and it kind of decreases the credibility of the rest of the film for you, right? And I mean, this is particularly true for computers, but it's also maybe true if you happen to have some kind of background in international relations and two countries are going to war in the movie and you're like, they would never go to war. Like they've had a trade deal for decades. No way they do that or, or something like that. And similarly, I think the other interesting thing about this outage is, first of all, that maybe the public doesn't expect that the best thing to do to get value out of this outage, you know, all of the damage having happened and being unrecoverable and so on and so forth, the way to get value out of this outage is to talk to the humans involved in it, which I think is a a key kind of organizational lesson. But also the point that I'm told, I I mean, I stopped thinking like an ordinary human being about incidents and internet services and so on a long while ago, but I'm told a lot of people were shocked by this kind of 
outage, like the duration, you know, oh my gosh, does this mean the rest of the internet, you know, is built on these unstable stacks of turtles and could fail at any moment? You know, this is horrifying. And to them, I have to say, A, it is horrifying. And yes, it is all built on stacks of turtles. And we are all juggling and keeping it going by our own effort in many cases. And this is something which is surprising to the public. It is surprising to the public. And you bring up a really good point because, you know, in other safety critical industries, like software isn't necessarily using aviation in in everyday life, but aviation is using software in everyday life and healthcare is using software in everyday life. And, you know, I've heard this very strong statement that, you know, what we do in the software industry doesn't harm people in any way and isn't safety critical, but it absolutely is. It's powering all these things that, I think the general public just kind of takes for, for granted sometimes. Like you, you pull up your phone every morning and, and you you pull up email, you pull up certain things, you you rely on software to get your kids to school, you rely on software to um, understand what you need to do next in your day. And we just assume that it's going to work all the time. But like you said, it is built on stacks of turtles. And so I think we're still early on as an industry in a lot of ways, but I think what we're going to find soon is that we need to be taking these with a bit more of a safety critical lens. Niall, thank you so much for, for chatting with me about this today. This was, I feel like we could talk about this all day and I feel like we probably will. One thing you pointed out to me earlier was that there isn't a lot known about this outage yet. It, it was, it only happened a couple weeks ago. And so I'm, I'm definitely going to keep an eye on the, the future communications and learnings about this incident and also the updates to that Wikipedia page. I would definitely hope there would be more, uh, if only a, you know, biogenetics program engineered in order to make turtles kind of more bin packable. So they're kind of steadier when you put them on top of each other. Square turtles, you heard it here first. Anyway, thank you for your time, Nora. I really appreciate it and tune in next time. Thanks now. Okay, folks, that's all we have time for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts today and follow us on Twitter at gettingthere underscore capital G, capital T. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com.